Thank you, David, for mentioning it. And I would mention it just one more time that one week from tonight, in case you came in late, uh, one week from tonight, we're going to have a foster care and adoption information night here at the church. Dinner will be provided. Child care is provided. So if nothing else, a, a night out. And we're going to be talking about uh, how great the need is in this place that God has us, literally thousands of children who need care, who need forever families, and hundreds of parents who are licensed to care for them. So it's a, it's a major, major problem in our backyard. And there are lots of ways that you can be a part of the solution to that and a part of uh, loving and caring for those who are in need. So you are all invited, whether that's something that's on your radar or not, we would encourage you to come out and just get information. If nothing else, know how to and be equipped to pray. So we're going to have as a special guest, Diane Partita, who our family knows well, is going to be here from Uplift Family Services, and she's going to be giving a presentation. And again, we'll eat together, spend time together, and pray together. So if that's something you would like to be a part of, and we hope all of you do, uh, we just ask that you would RSVP. So on page 11 of the bulletin, that's where you'll find Kristen, my wife's email address. Would you just send her an email? You have permission to get out your phone and do it now if you feel bad about doing that. Um, Send her an email and just let her know Who's coming? How many of you there are so that we can make sure we've got enough food, child care provided, and, and all of that. Within the Corinthian church, we talked about this last week, if you were here, there was an immature allegiance to certain Christian teachers, and it was resulting in division in that church. It was resulting in fighting and quarreling. It is the first of several problems that Paul addresses in this letter of 1 Corinthians, and he introduced the problem in the text that we read last week. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he said, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul obviously thought it absurd that any Christian would boast or brag about following him. And so he reminded his groupies in 113 that he had not been crucified for them and that they were not baptized in his name. Rather, the one who had been crucified for them and the one into whose name they had been baptized was the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Paul had been sent to preach. So as Paul begins to confront the divisions in Corinth, which he'll carry on for nearly four chapters, he starts by addressing the Paul party, and he basically says, you are professing an allegiance to me? You are boasting and bragging about following me, but I am just a messenger. That's his point. I am just a messenger. I came to point you to another. So get your allegiance off of me. Get your boasting off of me and get it onto Christ. And then he concluded that section we read last week by saying in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That verse is transitional and it shifts direction into our text today. Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel. Not only that, Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel a certain way. 
That's what we're hearing in verse 17. He sent Paul to preach the gospel a certain way. Look at or listen to the end of verse 17 with me. Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. That might sound strange to those of you with brains. Isn't eloquence good? Isn't eloquence a good thing? Isn't wisdom good? Why not preach the gospel with eloquence? Why not preach the gospel with wisdom? And here's Paul's answer. Preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Or you could use the word otherwise. So if you preach the gospel with eloquent words of wisdom, don't do that. Otherwise, the cross of Christ will be emptied of its power. So here's what Paul is saying. Preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom empties the cross of its power. That needs an explanation. And I believe that's where Paul is going next. Why? Why would preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom empty the cross of Christ of its power? Paul answers that question in verses 18 through 25. And Lord willing, we'll hear it. And as we move forward, remember, this is God's word. And here and here alone, we learn who we are. And more importantly, who God is. And when God's word is preached, if it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it always leads to God's glory and your good. So before I preach, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to your word, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with affections for you, and move our wills to love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you are free to take with you, if you don't own your own Bible, you will find today's text in those Bibles on page 618. 1 Corinthians 1 on page 618. So we know that preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom... That's what Paul said in the verse right before what we're studying today. We know that's to be avoided. Preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom is to be avoided. So what is that? Eloquent simply means skilled and persuasive in speech. And that's a good thing. Wisdom refers to practical knowledge. And that's a good thing. So why the restriction. To answer that question, let's track Paul into his explanation. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We'll come back to this verse. I'm not sure that tells us what this eloquent wisdom is. But look at verse 19. For it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Okay. So here, if you're following with your eyes, here is the next mention of wisdom. So we had eloquent wisdom. And now here's the next 
mention of wisdom, and it's a wisdom that God is destroying. So this isn't a good wisdom. This is probably the wisdom to be avoided in verse 17. According to verse 19, there is a wisdom that God will destroy. And there is a discernment that God will thwart. That wisdom, whatever it is, must not be mingled with the preaching of the gospel. When it is, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. Now next, in verse 20, Paul summons three examples of people who promoted this eloquent wisdom in that day. He says, Where is the one who is wise? That's one. Where is the scribe? That's two. Where is the debater of this age? That's three. So in first century Corinth, they were seen as sources of wisdom. The one who is wise was a source of wisdom. The scribe was seen as one who is wise. The debater was seen as a source of wisdom. So he says, Where are they who speak this eloquent wisdom? Verse 17. Who speak this wisdom that God is going to destroy? Verse 19. Where are these wise people? And now look at the end of verse 20. What does God say about their wisdom? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What does God call their wisdom? The wisdom of the world. So the wisdom of the scribe and the debater. The wisdom that God destroys. The eloquent wisdom that must not be preached with the gospel is the wisdom of the world. That's this wisdom to be avoided that he's talking about. It is the wisdom of the world. So we're able to go back now. Now we know what Paul meant by eloquent wisdom. So we could summarize verse 17 this way. Preaching the gospel with the wisdom of the world empties the cross of its power. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 17? Preaching the gospel with the wisdom of the world, empties the cross of its power. Okay. Wisdom of the world doesn't sound as good as eloquent wisdom, so this is starting to make sense. But, still, why? What's the connection? What's wrong with the wisdom of the world? Why is it so bad to... Put the wisdom of the world beside or next to or with the preaching of the gospel. Why would preaching the gospel with the wisdom of the world empty the cross of Christ of its power? Let's keep reading. Worldly wisdom has no place along the preaching of the gospel. That's clear. And there are at least... Four reasons for that. There's at least four reasons just seen in the text before us. So let me show you. Here are four qualities of worldly wisdom according to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Number one, it is not real wisdom. So let's look and see. It is not real wisdom. Charles Spurgeon said wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Wisdom is practical knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge for life. Wisdom is knowing the truth and then living accordingly. Which is why Psalms and Proverbs describe wisdom as a path. It's a path to life. It's a path that leads to peace and joy. Wisdom is right, skillful, full living. It is what Solomon prayed for, and it is what every human being should pray for. 
Proverbs 16, 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than to get gold? If you have wisdom, then you have knowledge for life. If you have wisdom, then you know how to live life. You know how to get the most out of life. You know how to live in a way that leads to your maximum joy, your maximum happiness. That's what everybody wants. So everybody wants, should want, wisdom. And what we see in this text is that worldly wisdom is actually not wisdom. It says it is, but it's not. It is, in Paul's words, the wisdom of the world. It is the wrong path. Verse 21 says, The world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, they did not, cannot, does not know God through their wisdom. Through their path. Through what they think is the way life should be lived. Worldly wisdom is a dead end. It's a merry-go-round. It goes nowhere. Worldly wisdom does not have answers to life's big questions. Questions that, when answered, form the foundation of all wisdom and the trajectory and aim and purpose of your entire life. The big questions, right? That everybody has. Questions like, who are we? Where did we come from? What happens after we die? Who is God? Is there a God? Is there such a thing as truth? As Christians, we have answers to all those questions. We have, by God's grace, access to real wisdom. To what verse 21 and verse 24 call, in opposition to the wisdom of the world, what does it say? The wisdom of God. But the wisdom of the world is not real wisdom. That's number one. Second thing we see, it's popular. Worldly wisdom is popular. It's everywhere. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 20, when he calls it the wisdom of the world. It is the wisdom of the entire world. It is popular and it is prominent because it sounds good. 2 Timothy 4.3 would say it suits our passions. According to Proverbs 14.12, it seems right to a man. That sounds worldly wisdom. That sounds right. That sounds good. That's logical, maybe. That's reasonable, maybe. That feels good. And in Paul's day, it was the wisdom of the wise men, it was the wisdom of the scribe, it was the wisdom of the debater. They were all spinning this worldview anywhere and everywhere, and people saw them as the ones with the answer. Today, it's not the scribe, it's not the debater as much as today, it's the wisdom of the university professor. It's the university professor It is the wisdom of the songwriter. It is the wisdom of what I would call the pop pundit. It's much of Hollywood. These are the people that most, that many in America today look to for for worldly wisdom. They look to for answers. They look to for a worldview. It is many professional athletes It is trendy, it is celebrated, it is mainstream, it is crowd-pleasing. If you like to be liked, you will be tempted to worldly wisdom. Because it's that popular. Number three. And this really gets to the danger of worldly wisdom. Three and four 
explain Paul's aversion to worldly wisdom. Number three, worldly wisdom mocks and rejects the cross. It mocks and rejects the cross. Verse 18. The word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. Verse 21. What we preach is folly. To the world. What do we preach? We preach. Verse 23. Christ crucified. And that is. What does it say? A stumbling block to Jews. And folly to Gentiles. In verse 22, we read that the Jews wanted dramatic signs. They wanted evidence. And the Greeks wanted philosophy. They wanted eloquent wisdom. And to all of them, we're told, the gospel was folly. That means they laughed at it. That means they mocked it. That means they rejected it. For an Old Testament believing Jew, a crucified Savior was offensive. Because of their understanding of the book of Deuteronomy, anytime you have a human being that is hanging on a tree, on a cross, that is a sign that he is cursed. So no way... Could their Messiah and their Savior be a crucified Savior? So it was offensive to the Jews. It was a stumbling block. And to everyone else, Greeks, Gentiles, it was incoherent. As ridiculous. But people still say this. That's silly. That's nuts. That doesn't make any sense. Why? Well, because the gospel says one thing and the wisdom of the world says another. They're diametrically opposed. The cross says you are so sinful that Christ had to die. The the, the cross says you are so sinful Jesus had to die. And the world says, you're a good person. Those are opposite messages. The cross says you cannot save yourself. And the world says you are in control. And you can do anything. The cross says Christ is our example of sacrifice. The world says Colin Kaepernick is our example of sacrifice. These are two totally different messages. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world are antithetical. And at the end of the day, the wisdom of the world mocks the cross of Christ. At the end of the day, the wisdom of the world rejects the cross of Christ. And finally, the fourth quality of worldly wisdom that we can see here, it ends badly. Worldly wisdom ends badly. It is not real wisdom, though it is popular. It mocks and rejects the cross of Christ and it ends very badly. What does verse 18 say again? For the word of the cross is folly to who? To those who. Who are perishing. Friends, worldly wisdom ends badly. There are two kinds of people in the world, according to verse 18 those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You are one of those people today. You are either a member of those who are right now. Perishing. Or you are among those who are being saved. And according to verse 18, 
those two people can be identified by what they think wisdom is. What's going to happen to this wisdom according to verse 19? God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It ends badly. Through this worldly wisdom, the world, verse 21, does not know God. Again, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but, do you know the rest of that verse? Its way ends in death. That's worldly wisdom. It sounds good. It's common. It's mainstream. It's celebrated. It's popular. It's much of Hollywood. It's much of professional athletes. It's many who are in the public spotlight are spinning and promoting this. And it seems right to so many people. But in the end, it terminates at death. It's the wrong way. It ends badly. So to summarize these four qualities. Eloquent wisdom. The wisdom of the world is not real wisdom. It may sound good. It may be popular. But it mocks and rejects the cross of Christ and ends in destruction. So I think by now, we should have a better understanding of the point Paul made in verse 17. Preaching the gospel with eloquent, worldly wisdom empties the cross of its power. That is Paul's point put negatively. Don't do that. That's what he's saying. If and when you preach the gospel, do not, as I do not, preach the gospel with eloquent worldly wisdom. Don't do that, Paul is saying. Because when you do that, you are emptying the cross of its power. That is a point here in this text. That negative exhortation. But it's not, it's not the main point. And we need the main point. Whenever you're reading God's word, whenever you're listening to the preaching of God's word, we need the main point. This is what expository or expositional preaching is. Expository preaching takes the main point of the text and makes it the main point of the sermon. And that's what preaching almost always needs to be. So there's a negative point here that Paul makes, and it's important. Reject and avoid worldly wisdom. Never preach the gospel with the wisdom of the world. Worldly wisdom is foolish and weak. But the primary theme here is not the folly and weakness of worldly thinking. The main theme is the wisdom and power of the gospel. And this backdrop of the folly and the weakness of the wisdom of the world is what brings into prominence the wisdom and power of the gospel. That's why Paul is writing this the way he is. So the brightness of the gospel, the light of the gospel is seen very clearly against the dark backdrop of the folly and weakness of worldly wisdom. So let's read through these verses again. And here's what we're looking for. This is the main theme, the main point, the main subject. We're looking for the wisdom and the power of the gospel. So let's begin back up at verse 18. Verse 18. For the word of the cross... Do we know what that is? Let's read this verse with the verse right before 17 to make sure. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross. So the word of the cross is the gospel. He's using a different phrase to describe the same thing. The word of the cross is the gospel. The gospel is the word of the cross. The gospel is the message of the cross. It is the good news of the cross. The cross is always at the center of the gospel. So if the gospel you believe or the gospel you heard or the gospel you preach does not have the cross as its centerpiece, then you don't know the gospel. Maybe you haven't heard the gospel. You're not preaching the gospel because the gospel is, in Paul's words, it is the word of the cross. So let's keep reading. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is not powerful. That's not what it actually says. The word of the cross is not powerful. The word of the cross is the power. Think about that. He could say, but he's not saying, the gospel, the word of the cross is powerful. It is full of the power of God. He's saying, the word of the cross is the power of God. What kind of power? That's what we want to know. What kind of power? What power? Power to do what? Skip down to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, or in the path of God, the plan of God, For in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. And what do we preach? The word of the cross. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to. What's it going to do? To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We're not into the signs. We're not into the philosophy. We're into the word of the cross, the gospel, Christ crucified, period. And it has, it is the power to do what? The gospel, the word of the cross, Christ crucified is the power to save those who believe. Look at verse 18 again. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what is it? It is the power of God. Look for power again in verse 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the cross is not just powerful. No, the word of the cross is the power of God, the power to save people from their sin. The gospel only loses its place in the church when the church stops believing that this is the gospel. How could this ever be marginalized? How could this ever be put in the back seat? 
How could this ever be something that you put in a box and move on from in your Christian life? How could this ever be something that is not at the center of every song, at the center of every prayer, at the center of every sermon, at the center of every worship service, if in fact the gospel is the word of the cross, which is the power of God to save people from their sin? The word of the cross is the wisdom and power of God to save those who are called and believe. Think about it. You and I are great sinners. This is one of the things the Bible teaches us. Remember, we learn from God's word who we are. We are valuable. We are valuable as image bearers of God. That's a big deal. Human life is valuable and worthy of honor and dignity. But we also learn that as image bearers of God, we are we are marred image bearers of God. Imagine a mirror reflecting God, but there's a lot of cracks in that mirror. We're sinners. What will save us from our sin? What will save you from your sin? Where is the power going to come from to save you from your sin and reconcile you with the God you have sinned against and keep sinning against and will continue to sin against? Can you save yourself? You cannot save yourself. Some of you have tried. You've tried to follow the law. You've tried to follow the rules. You've tried to be a good person. You've tried to do the right thing. And you, like me, you've failed. You can't save yourself. Your pastor can't save you. Your priest can't save you. Your parents can't save you. The word of the cross is power. The word of the cross is power to save you. The word of the cross is power to save your family. The word of the cross is power to save your spouse. It is power to save your children. It is power to save your mom. It is power to save your dad. It is power to save your friends. The gospel the word of the cross is the power of God to save. Think about the power of God's word. We're told that in the beginning, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that everything that we see in the natural world was spoken into existence. So nothing that you know in the universe exists apart from God's word speaking it into existence. How powerful are God's words? By his words, he spoke the earth into existence. Deuteronomy 8 tells us that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by the word of God. And now we're learning here that it is the word of the cross that saves people from their sin. So this universe does not exist apart from the spoken word of God. And a Christian does not exist apart from the word of the cross. So if you are here and you are a Christian, how do you know the answer to that question? How did that happen? How did you go from darkness to light? How did you go from not believing to believing? How did you go from not caring about God to caring about God? How did you go from worshiping other things to worshiping God? How did you go from those desires to these desires? What kind of power did it take? It was the power of the word of the cross. It was the power of the gospel. The good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done 
was spoken to you. And when it was, the Holy Spirit activated your heart and your mind and your soul to love God, to believe his word, to love others, and to commit your days to him. There's power in the word of the cross. In conclusion, then, let me ask two questions. Two questions in light of what we've learned about the wisdom and the power of the cross in Paul's words here in verses 18 through 25. So number one, what gospel do you preach? What gospel do you preach? And you might be thinking, I'm not the preacher. You're the preacher, buddy. You might be thinking, that's your problem up there, pulpit man. That's not my problem. This is what Romans 10, verse 14 says. So you've got people out there who don't believe. That's who this is talking about. And you know them. You've got friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, people that don't believe. And it says this. Well, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? They need to believe. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard of? So they need to hear about him. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And I am not the only one with beautiful feet. Every single one of you. I actually don't have beautiful feet. Every single one of you has metaphorically speaking, beautiful feet when those feet bring you to someone and you speak the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. So we're all preachers. Every single one of us is preacher. We're Christian. We know the gospel. When we speak the gospel, we preach. So the question is, what gospel do you preach? Is it the word of the cross? Do you tell people what they want to hear? Or do you tell people what they need to hear? We're told that the Jews wanted signs, the Greeks wanted wisdom. But the gospel is what they needed. What does your spouse need? What do your kids need? What do your friends need? What does your church family need? Christians, non-Christians now, everyone, what do they need to hear? The word of the cross. Is this what we speak to one another? Is this what we preach to one another? Okay, it's in our songs that we sing. It's in the prayers that we pray. So it gets it gets its way into our Sunday mornings. And that's a start. The word of the cross has made its way into our Sunday mornings here at Veritas. But does the word of the cross make its way into the rest of your days? Husbands, when you speak to your wife, do you speak to your wife about the word of the cross? Is the gospel in the forefront of your mind? Is the gospel on your lips? Wives, when you speak to your husbands, do you speak to them the word of the cross? Does the cross have anything to do with your marriage? What about your kids? When you're tucking your kids in at night, when you're driving with them in the car, when you're disciplining them, when you're spending time with your kids, do they hear from you the word of the cross? They will if you really believe that the word of the cross is the power of God to save people from their sin. They'll hear it a bunch. They'll hear it all the time. 
You'll be reminding them over and over and over again. You are a great sinner and he is a great savior. Some parents are really good at one and not the other. Don't be the parent who's really good at reminding your kids. You are a great sinner. You are a great sinner. You did it again. You messed up again. You're getting punished again. You're getting disciplined again. Don't do that. They are great sinners, but do they know that he is a great savior? Do they get forgiven? Do they get clean slates? Do they get back to fun with mom and dad and joy with mom and dad and happiness with mom and dad? Do they get the silent treatment? Do they get ignored? Do they get the stink eye? Do they get prolonged punishments? Do they get prolonged restrictions? Be careful you don't just teach your kids that they are great sinners. But He is a great Savior. And while you're, I'm sure you've been caught doing this, while you're administering all those consequences, you're reminded in the administrating of all those consequences how many things you've been forgiven for while you're administrating consequences. You know the gospel that you are a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. Is this what you preach? And then the second question, this could hit a nerve. Is this the gospel you believe? Is this really the gospel you believe? Do you believe the word of the cross? That you are a great sinner. In need of salvation, in need of peace with God, being reconciled to God. There's no way you can do that in and of yourselves. And you know and believe that Jesus came. And he lived. And he suffered. And he died. And he rose from the dead. In your place. Not just as an example But he died in your place. He rose from the dead in your place. So that you could be reconciled to God. Do you believe that gospel? That's the word of the cross. And anything other than that is no gospel at all. There's a very popular gospel today. There's a very popular form of good news today. And the good news starts very briefly with, you're not the greatest person. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Those are all ways of just feeling better about ourselves and sort of dumbing down our sin. Nobody's perfect, you know. We all make mistakes. Don't be too hard on yourself. It starts with that. And then the good news is often preached this way. You need to go to church. You need to go to church. Better yet, you need to join a church. You need to get baptized. You need to take communion. And when you're really ready to graduate, you need to lead a ministry. And that's a common 21st century American gospel. Go to church. Get baptized. These are the bases. Round the bases. If you lead the ministry, you're sliding into home plate. That's where assurance of salvation really comes in. Everybody's patting you on your back. What a great job you did. What a great job you're doing. Listen. That's garbage. That's not the gospel. That is not what you need. That is not what your family needs. That is not what your friends need. I hope if they go to church, they go to church and they hear the gospel. And that can be the start of something really good. But you are not saved by sitting in these gray seats. And you are not saved by singing the songs and looking like you're into it. 
And you are not saved by giving a hearty amen at the end of the prayers. You're not saved by nodding your head during my sermons and being one that doesn't fall asleep. You're not saved by volunteering with the kids. And you're not saved by being a good husband and being a good father. You're not saved by honoring and obeying your mom and dad. You're not saved by any of those things. Those seats don't have any power. This building has no power. I have no power. Your parents have no power. Your friends have no power. Your family has no power. Your good works have zero power. The power is in the word of the cross. Do you believe the gospel? Do you preach the gospel? For those of you who do believe the gospel, every Sunday, following every sermon, we, we all respond as Christians. We respond by taking communion together. And we do that in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross through his death. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So we are remembering. And we are proclaiming. The Lord's sacrificial death. This morning. You are invited to take communion with us today. If you are a baptized believer. If you have confessed your sin. And placed your trust for salvation. In the work of Christ. And if you are part of a local church. Whether this or another. That faithfully preaches the gospel. If this is your first time here, we have leaders up front who would serve you. We ask you please empty into the center aisle and come forward. Take the bread and the juice. Return to your seat from the outer aisle. And then once we're all back in our seats, we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we're turning our attention now to the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his death in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray, amen.